You're going to love this episode. Stuart McDonald is a brilliant guest doing super interesting work. We talk about life expectancy improvements, COVID, ambulance wait times, why you don't want to live in Blackpool, state pension policy, DB funding, and whether wearable tech could help with retirement income planning. I hope you enjoy it. We, well, it's all right. We'll edit out the boring bits, right? So I was Fine. reflecting. I was reflecting on Shakespeare's Seven Ages of Man. Uh, I think it was Shakespeare who came up with that one, wasn't it? And, I think so. And how to me now it feels like things move in four phases, right? So childhood now seems to last roughly until your mid twenties, <laughs> right? And I'm looking at my kids who've gone off to university and then come home and live here, and and you're not actually properly an adult. It seems until you kind of well into your mid-twenties, it seems to me. I yeah. caveat that very heavily. And then I was thinking about retirement planning and how there's definitely a transition point as you move into your 50s where you're typically your kids are starting to leave home and you're, you're kind of getting beyond the point of bringing up your family and you know, you've been earning money and now you're starting to think about retirement. And that, so, so the second quarter is just all about bringing up kids and earning money. And then the third quarter is about the transition from 50 to 75. At the beginning of that period, you're in work. And by the end of that period, you're almost certainly not in work anymore. More. And so that's where you have to make all the big chunky decisions about your retirement savings. And then the last quarter, you're just basically hanging on for as long as you can. But 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 so that, it just it just struck me. But I'd be yeah, you know, given that you're an actuary, what's your take on all of that? So I, I would largely agree with what you're saying for the likes of you and I, and and likely for most of uh, of your listeners. I, I think that's a really good characterization of where we are now. You know, in in terms of sort of professional knowledge-based economy there's socioeconomic differences of course and uh, you know, around the ages at which major milestones are reached you know we still see very big differences around for example age of first child socioeconomically mm-hmm. and you know with with the sort of knowledge-based workers pushing you know that key milestone later and later and then other groups still in some cases having having kids uh, quite young and you know moving into a house on your own again that that's an area where i think there's there's challenge up and down the sort of socioeconomic gradient uh, it's becoming increasingly harder for for young people to to hit that milestone and yeah education's extending out i think that's a good thing i mean long term i think this kind of linear model of of education work retirement is up for grabs and, and for rejuvenation. You know, I think some of the work that Andrew Scott and others have done around the 100-year life is is really worth looking at and thinking about. We are very unlikely, I think, to be able to build a sufficient, you know, adequate knowledge base in those kind of early educational years in our, in our teens and 20s to see us through 40, 50 years of, of change. Uh, pace of change at the moment is astonishing. And uh, I'm sure we're all going to need to top up our education as we go. But yeah, I think I think it's a really interesting area and, and really interesting to see how it's how it's changing and playing out and, and kind of inexorably tied up to some of these broader demographic points, you know, ar- around how long we live, around fertility and the way society is changing. Interesting. And we'll come back to some of that, I'm sure, um, not least the disparities across economic prosperity and regions in the UK. I'm trying to remember, who was Andrew Andrew Scott's co-author on that? Was it Linda Gray? Linda Gratton. 
Linda, Linda Grattan, Grattan, I think. Linda, thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, no, really interesting piece of work that. Okay, so look, we should do some introductions. So Stuart McDonald from LCP, but also from the CMI, the Continuous Mortality Investigation Bureau, which sounds like a really boring version of Men in Black, but isn't. It's super interesting, <laughs> as I hope our listeners are already finding. But anyway, build on, build, build on my introduction to you there. What do you do, Stuart? Thanks, Tom. Yes, as you say, I am very recent, fairly recently, a partner at LCP. So I joined in October of last year. And my brief here at LCP is to sit between two of our businesses. So we've got a very long established pensions consultancy business that I would expect many of your audience would be familiar with. We also have a more newly established, so with with great timing just before the pandemic, health analytics business. So that is... I think between 30 and 35 now, doctors, epidemiologists, health economists, statisticians, and others who are largely advising the pharmaceutical industry on uh, things like health inequalities and uh, you know, have very, very deep expertise in, in health and mortality, but don't really speak the same language as our actuaries. So if you like, the untapped opportunity that's brought me here is to kind of be Dr. Doolittle that, that sits in the middle and, and can talk both languages. I'm, I, I won't profess to be medically trained. I, I'm certainly not, but I've spent enough time sitting with epidemiologists and medical researchers in my 20 years in, in insurance and reinsurance that I can sort of cross the language divide to some extent and find a way to tangibly bring in that kind of health insight and input into actuarial advice. So that's the day job. The CMI, uh, no longer CMI Bureau, I'm afraid, Tom. We, okay, we, sure. we oh, uh, decided to uh, to drop that a while ago, and which you know, I think there are mixed feelings about. But uh, yeah, we, um, we, we're no longer quite as men in black aspiring. But uh, yeah, that's the continuous mortality investigation. So it's the part of the actuarial profession that worries about mortality rates and sickness rates and life expectancy been going longer than people realize. So yes, it was set up in response to the pandemic, but not this one. So we've been going since the early 1920s. So it will be the CMI's 100th anniversary next year. So one to look out for. I think we'll be trying to make something of that. Last hat is that I set up in 2020 at the start of the pandemic, the current one, the COVID-19 Actuaries Response Group. So that was a kind of industry-wide group of principally actuaries, but it was a multidisciplinary team with catastrophists and epidemiologists and other kind of public health experts involved. And that was quite influential through the pandemic, both in terms of raising public awareness of what was going on and and providing unbiased commentary. But as time went on, increasingly influencing the the, the official response as well. So we contributed work that was was used at SAGE and made an impact on the the sort of formal decision making around how to respond to the pandemic. All super interesting. Thank you for all that. So look... Okay, we we could spend all day on this one question, but so forgive me, but just give us some context, first of all. So I know there have been huge changes over the last 150 years, 100 years in terms of life expectancy, in terms of mortality experience. So 
just in, in a nutshell, what have been the big shifts as we come forward over the last hundred years? Where have the big gains been, and, and, and where does that leave us now? Oh, you set me quite a challenge there. Should we see if I can do a hundred years in a hundred seconds uh, or, it, or right. similar? Well, yeah, as you say, 150 years is probably a good period to look at. We've got good data actually going back to 1840. Headline. If you were to write a newspaper of the last century, rather than just focusing on the day's news or all that noise, this would probably be your main story. So life expectancies doubled over that period. So that's gone from about 40 to about 80. I would say it's it's got a really good, strong case for being called our, our greatest success story. But for much of that period... I won't bore you with the way life expectancy is calculated, but essentially early deaths have a disproportionate effect on the average. So for much of that period, what was really happening that was driving up life expectancy was falling infant mortality and child mortality. So it was all about what was going on at the youngest ages. But actually, since around the 1950s, we then started to see steep increases in life expectancy for adults. So people who'd already made it to 50 or or for a retirement context made it to 60 and above, we started to see their life expectancy going up as well. The three big drivers around that, I would say, were the introduction of the NHS, the increasing realisation, so the Doll study and beyond, of the harms of smoking and the big falls in smoking prevalence that fell from those and antibiotics. So golden age of antibiotics was the sort of 1940s to 1960s and many of the, the treatments that we, we use today were introduced. So I'd say those three things really driving up life expectancy and driving down mortality rates. So huge success story. Okay, which is great. But we've banked a lot of the the gains on the sort of circulatory and respiratory conditions. You mentioned smoking there, which is a big driver. And and to a lesser extent on things like cancer. So we picked the low-hanging fruit, haven't we, in terms of in terms of how we improve longevity at older ages. And it gets it gets harder from here. And I was really interested in some data you produced around Obviously, there's COVID in the last couple of years, which you've been working on as well, but also things like dementia and Alzheimer's and, 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 and where we go from here. So you're absolutely right about that, that kind of low-hanging fruit analogy. So for very natural and understandable reasons, medical profession has focused on the killers that affect us earlier on in life. You know, so we've we've dealt very, very well with cardiovascular. So heart disease in particular, the age standardized mortality rate of that has halved just since 2000. So that was our, our biggest killer. Huge fall in mortality. Stroke mortalities halved over that same period. Flu and pneumonia. So many of the cardiovascular causes that kill people young, we've made huge progress on. Yeah, cancer is a harder nut to crack. It tends to kill people later in life. It's many different things. So it's I'd probably get picked up on this by medical and surgical colleagues, but cardiovascular is largely plumbing. You know, it, it, it's quite easy to address and, you know, conceptually and, you know, just make sure things don't get blocked. And cancer's much harder and dementia and Alzheimer's, which will be the next challenge once we start to make material progress on cancer, is much harder again. You know, that's the workings of the brain. And, and we're really just getting started, I think, in our understanding of that. Some promising first steps with a, a recent clinical trial. Unfortunately, there was a, an unacceptable number of, of people got brain bleeds from this drug, but the drug was slowing dementia 
dementia and Alzheimer's progress by about a third. That's that's kind of very recent news. And, and you know, any small steps there are obviously threads to pull on and, and for further study. But those causes will be much, much harder to address. Okay, okay. And obviously, COVID's been a the thing of the last couple of years. And it's not just been COVID and people dying from from COVID, but it has driven up mortality in other areas as well. All the all the missed appointments, all the the misprescriptions, all the all the knock on effects of COVID, which we're still experiencing. And and you you you've suggested that that we've effectively ended up in a place where we've we've gone backwards, right? Yeah, that's that's a, an absolutely fair characterization. So COVID hit us hard. And, you know, there, there was no easy answer. I'm, I'm not here to criticise any of the steps that were taken in, in trying to deal with that. There was really good understanding right from the start amongst the members of SAGE that we would be balancing short and long-term harms and trying to minimise the overall level of harm. But yeah, COVID obviously had a very, very profound impact on mortality directly. We saw a very high number of excess deaths in 2020 particularly, and also in 2021, particularly in the first quarter. Most of the excess deaths that we saw in 2020 and 2021 were directly as a result of COVID. But as time's gone on, we've been seeing increasing harm from various other causes of death. So you've touched on a few of them there. So ambulance waiting times, for example, have hit previously unprecedented levels. So let me just give you an example. Category two emergencies. So this is your strokes, your heart attacks. And for some of the reasons we've already talked about and that I'll come on to, these are uh, an important area to, to watch. But the target time to reach somebody when they've had a, a stroke or a heart attack, these category two emergencies, the ambulance targets 18 minutes. Now, in the second half of 2022, we were regularly bumping up against an hour for that, so three times as long as people should be waiting. And then in December 22, which was exceptional, so we had a flu and a COVID wave hit at uh, exactly the same time, while there's all sorts of other difficulties going on in the health service. But those ambulance waiting times for Category 2 emergencies hit 90 minutes, so really a level where you're expecting an enormous amount of harm to arise. Missed and delayed diagnosis you talked about. So great bit of research from the British Heart Foundation, formally published at the start of this year, but available a year prior to that uh, in preprint, showed around half a million missed new diagnoses for blood pressure medications. It, it showed the same thing for, for various other medications, but this is a, it's a good one to concentrate on. So you've got half a million people who would ordinarily have been put on to blood pressure meds for the first time. And you can see that group, that cohort are missing from the data, from the prescriptions data. And although the prescriptions numbers have sort of got back onto track, there's been no progress in, in catching up with that, that last group. So whatever would have put them in front of a GP or in a hospital, that window has passed. And that gap alone, if, if we don't manage to catch up on that in, in the near term, you're looking at thousands of additional strokes and, and heart attacks arising from those missed and delayed diagnoses. That's already showing up in mortality data. So we're already seeing lots of excess deaths from these cardiovascular causes. There is a similar story, which we're not yet seeing 
reach its conclusion for things like cancer. So surprisingly, it was cancer that got a lot of focus early in the pandemic, people trying to create this kind of false dichotomy of COVID versus cancer in the press. You know, if you had cancer, the very last thing you want is to pick up a COVID diagnosis on top of that. That cancer, we we saw a lot of missed and delayed diagnoses, just as we saw with cardiovascular, but we're not seeing the consequences of those yet. So we're not seeing that translate into additional deaths. But I'm afraid I, I see that in our future over the next few years. I think, you know, people that might have lived seven more years if their cancer had been detected early enough, you know, their cancer will be spotted later and, and they'll have a worse prognosis off the off the back of that. Right. So some of this is going to take a while to play through. Um, Absolutely. I, I was really struck by some numbers you produced on A&E patients and the, the delay between the decision to admit and actual admission. And you, you apparently had been able to quantify quite specifically the number of additional deaths caused by those extra delays in wait, waiting for admission, which I mean, I think I think it's just amazing work you're doing there. Thank you. So, yes, it, it's associated with. So the, the point I would make about those deaths, but before I come on to explain how it works, is it, it, it's important to be aware that when one part of the hospital goes bad, most measures go bad at the same time. So, you know, the ambulance waiting times spiked at the same time as the A&E waiting times. And if you had various measures of, of the ward's effectiveness, you'd see all those measures go bad at the same time. But this was a it was a really interesting project. And what we did was we took some published research, very credible, widely cited within the NHS by clinicians working in A&E departments. And they had studied admissions between 2016 and 2018. And they found essentially what what you'd call a dose-response relationship between the amount of time that people were waiting and the additional mortality that would arise amongst those patients. So one of the key results is that for every 72 patients waiting 8 to 12 hours between the decision to admit and admission, you'd expect an additional death. So we took that number and we applied it to the waiting times that we were seeing in the latter part of 22 and in particular in December. And we found that essentially it would cause around 500 additional deaths a week compared to if we didn't have those delays happening. So important to realise not all of those deaths are happening within the A&E unit. They're not even necessarily happening within the hospital, but there are additional deaths happening within 30 days of that visit to A&E that are strongly associated with with that delay. And something else I, I'd just point out, because it, it, you know, it is highly relevant, we're taking this number needed to harm for eight to 12 hour delays. So we're saying for every 72 patients waiting eight to 12 hours, you get an extra death. We're applying that to people waiting 12 hours or more. So the reason being that, you know, that's the way the, the data is available. During the period in, in 2016 to 2018, there just weren't enough people waiting 12 hours or more to have to do analysis on on what that level of harm produces. If you look at the time series of 12-hour waits, it's basically a decade of nobody and then suddenly spiking up to tens of thousands in the latter part of last year. So it's a very striking graph, essentially a horizontal line followed by a vertical one. Yeah, which tells its own story, doesn't it? So a lot of people across our industry will be familiar with the, the disparities in life expectancy. And, and forgive me, I will use these terms 
ill-advisedly and, and, and uh, loosely because I'm a lay person almost, but basically what would commonly be assumed to be sort of life expectancy. But you'd published some numbers, I think it was in uh, your recent paper, looking at Blackpool versus Kensington and Chelsea. And I think for men, the life expectancy in the former was 68 years and for the latter it was 95 years. Is that right? Have I got that right? Exactly um, right, yeah. So, were, were, um, those, were those the two extremes? Were those, were those as good and as bad as it gets across the UK? Yes. Yeah, so the What's longevity so report. That, so it's not all of Blackpool. It is a what they call a medium level super output area. So it's a small local area within Blackpool. And the uh, yeah, the life expectancy there is is extraordinarily low, as you say, sixty eight for for men. And it wouldn't be quite right to say what's so bad about Blackpool. I, th- I think the you know that area within Blackpool obviously has issues, but that area will look more like an inner city area in Liverpool or Manchester than it might look like the suburbs of of Blackpool. So that work is looking at these relatively small areas the smallest level at which you could get statistically credible insight and comparing them. Mm-hmm. And if you actually, if you look at the differences for, for women, so it's a, it's a 27 year difference for men, as you've, as you've highlighted for women, it's a 21 year difference between the best and the worst, but it's different places. So it's, it's an area within Leeds that has the worst life expectancy for women and part of Camden that has the, the highest life expectancy. So yeah, these inequalities are vast and they are widening. So I, I don't just mean as a result of COVID, although that is making things worse, but they were widening in the decade leading up to it as well. In fact, the 10% of women in the living in the most deprived areas saw their life expectancy go backwards in the sort of 10 years leading up to the pandemic, whereas all the rest of society, so you know, men and, and women in the 90% of least deprived groups all, all saw some progress. The, it was the more affluent groups that saw the, the better progress. And thinking back to what you said at the outset of this this recording, you know, we've all become accustomed to continuous improvements in life expectancy and quality of life generally. And I think I'm right in saying in Russia in the 90s, things sort of went a bit backwards when, when the whole kind of Soviet Union collapsed and the yeah. order was sort of fell apart a little bit and life expectancy. I think alcoholism was a big factor there. But I mean, the gen- generally, you know, we're used to things getting better all the time. Yeah. Um, and you've highlighted just, I think, one decile of the population there. But the idea that things are going backwards is not something that we, we, we adjust to easily, I think. Oh, it's baked into the language, Tom. You know, actuaries talk about mortality improvements. You know, we don't talk about mortality change. You know, we, we're conceptually <laughs> locked into this idea that it'll get better year on year, as it largely has, if, if you take a view over the decades and, and the centuries. But we may well be looking at a period where there is significantly more variation, where there are very large groups within the population, and maybe even all of us on average, seeing little or no progress. The CMI, the, the Continuous Mortality Investigation, is releasing a new model of mortality improvement as it does each year. So there's a new version coming out in the next month. And that is going to forecast very little improvement for what's left of the 2020s. So essentially a lost decade, though the model will still, the way most people I think will use it, will still assume that we, we start to see some progress once we get into the 2030s and beyond. Okay, so let's let's unpack some of that in terms of what it means for pensions and retirement savings. So in no particular order, 
What does this mean for annuity pricing? I mean, I know a lot of annuity pricing is driven by interest rates, but but there's mortality in there as well. So should we all rush out and buy our annuity now before? Oh, actually, no, we should wait, couldn't we? Should we? If, 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 if assumptions are going to shift, does that mean the annuity rates are going to improve off the back of that? So it's worth noting that insurers and reinsurers, they won't necessarily wait for the model if, if it's well known what the model's going to do, then then some may move faster or slower. But generally, it is very clear that life expectancy assumptions are falling. You only have to look at what's been going on across insurance and pension industries in terms of life expectancy assumptions. This new model from the CMI, it's calibrated to the general population, but all else being equal, it's, it's going to show a 2.5% fall in life expectancy at age 65. So for the general population, that would imply that you'll be paying those annuities for for less long and and you can offer a a, a better annuity rate. It's worth saying that people that buy annuities are a select population. Mm. They're they're not necessarily affected to the same extent by all of the different things which are driving this fall in life expectancy. And I'm sure insurers will take a view on the extent to which the population they normally sell to are affected. But yes, it it is a, a significant fall in the assumed life expectancy. And and that means that you can afford to offer better annuity rates. But as you say, lots of other things going on as well, interest rates, the assets available to them, and uh, regulation. So changes to Sovereignty 2, now that the UK's left the the European Union, so Sovereignty UK, you know, all of these things relevant too. But I I should say, mostly pushing in the same direction to to see better annuity pricing. So I want to come on to the state pension in a moment, because I think that's a really interesting area from a policy point of view. But just before I do, let's talk a bit about DB funding. I mean, is this all good news for for DB? And I'm aware that DB schemes generally are in a much better position than they were a couple of years ago. But is this this good news for DB scheme solvency? Yeah, for the same reasons. As you say, for for DB, just like when somebody's buying an annuity, there are lots of other considerations as well. And many of those will have a a bigger impact on funding than life expectancy assumptions. But it, it is unequivocally a move towards assuming that people live less long and therefore the funding situation improves. And that means adjustments to cash flow assumptions, LDI modeling, all that kind of stuff has to change to in response to that? Exactly right. Yeah. If you're if you're uh, applying a cash flow matching strategy, then it's important that you you understand when those cash flows are likely to apply. So important to to have a really good handle on what life expectancy looks like for your individual scheme. As I say, different pension schemes will be affected differently from the the general population. So the longevity report that LCP put out recently that you mentioned to earlier has a lot on this and ways that individual schemes ought to think about their what assumptions are appropriate to their membership. Okay, so I mean a huge question or what does all this mean for the state pension? There's been a lot of to and fro about increasing state pension age. The inevitable trend is I mean we've got legislation in place to take us up to age 68. The only question has been when rather than if. Yeah. My own state pension age will be 67. And and then you know come back to our, our poor chap living in Blackpool or some other inner city area who's only got a life expectancy of 68. 
it feels like this everything you've talked about here poses some really awkward questions for policymakers in terms of how they distribute that that welfare benefit of the state pension and how they support people in later life. And I'd be really interested in your thoughts around all of that. Yeah, it, it's a huge question, a political question. And, and perhaps uncharacteristically for me, I am going to end up probably sitting on that actuarial fence in terms of policy recommendations. But I would completely agree with you as to what a difficult question state pension age is in principle. So as you say, we have these enormous life expectancy differences up and down the country, but it's quite difficult. You know, the ideas like having a local state pension age you know, very quickly come up against real world operational challenges. You know, what stops me rushing off to buy a flat in Blackpool or Glasgow, you know, at the time I need it. So there's all sorts of difficulties that come of that and similar challenges if you were to try and do it based on industry and occupation, particularly given how mobile much of the workforce is. I think, you know, in terms of where state pension age would be if we if we accept that we need a, a universal state pension age. I think your view on whether this still needs to go up and when it still needs to go up really depends on the time frame that you are most focused on. So if you take a very long-term view, you would say that when state pension age was brought in, it was broadly similar to life expectancy. You know, this was designed as a benefit for those that lived longer than they expected to and and, uh, needed something to, yeah, exactly, longevity insurance. And then over the decades, it stayed basically pretty fixed. And while life expectancy has gone up and, and up, so you could take a view that we were far too slow to start thinking about this question and you know should have been making changes a long time before the sort of first noises about you know increasing state pension age you know first for women in in the 90s and then in the first decade of of this century you know starting to push up state pension age more more broadly so over that very long time window you would say we're still catching up with where state pension age ought to be but you can't ignore the practical reality that real humans don't take a hundred year view they look at what the generation before them got and you know we have set expectations so more recent communications have, have focused on you know spending roughly a third of your life in in retirement so i do think practically and and realistically, it would be politically untenable to try and take that very long-term view. And actually, we do need to focus more on what expectations have been set in more recent years and even in the last few decades uh, when we're thinking about where that ought to go. Wow. Okay. That's one we could could, could spend a long time unpicking all of that one. And you know, the extent to which people should pin their hopes on that golden years period in later life when they can go on all those holidays and do the nice things that they've been putting off because they've been trapped on the wheel of the daily grind. So I think we've gone beyond our pay grade with those questions, though. So uh, let's, let's move on. The one other thing that struck me was whether one of the biggest challenges, I think, for individuals moving as we move into this DC world now, we move away from a world where the state and your employer between them just guarantee a retirement income and now increasingly the the, the the level of prosperity and you enjoy retirement is based on how much you've saved up and whether you've been fortunate or not in that regard. 
But that huge challenge for individuals is managing this finite pool of assets over an uncertain period of time. And it's very, very hard. It's one of the hardest financial planning questions is what's a prudent rate of withdrawal of my retirement savings? You know, take too much and I'll run out, take too little and well, I won't have enjoyed the, the fruits of my labours quite as much as I could have done. And so hitting the sweet spot, you know, the, the not too hot, not too cold is super difficult. And, and yet we've got, we've got a whole lot of technology available today from watches to phones, things like the Whoop device, which I don't have, but everyone raves about, um, which can basically monitor your health for you. So I'd be interested in your thoughts around the potential to maybe link health data and life expectancy data to retirement income planning decisions? Yeah, it's a huge and really interesting question, isn't it? You know, I've heard the decumulation problem called the hardest problem in finance and can see absolutely where that's coming from. I think on the tech, it is a great enabler, you know, for those that will get access to this. And I, I hope eventually we will see enough benefit from bits of wearable tech, for example, that they might become things that are available on the NHS for people who, who don't necessarily have the resources themselves to get hold of them. But tech can make a huge difference. So we talked earlier on about just how important it is when somebody has a heart attack or a stroke, how getting to them quickly makes such a huge, huge difference. And you know, one of the things that really drove huge improvement in stroke survival, heart attack survival, and so on was mobile phones. So, you know, in terms of things that wouldn't have been foreseen by the medical community, that made a huge difference. Just, you know, you, you have this emergency happen and instead of having to have somebody sprint down a road looking for a phone box and trying to remember where they came from. And, you know, you, you, you've suddenly got this device. You can you can phone, phone 999 straight away. How much better will it be if you've got if your Apple phone or watch or other brands are available can just notify the emergency services straight away before you even necessarily know that something's happening to you? It picks up a, a, a fluctuation in your your heart rhythm and 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 just acts. So a lot of this stuff does have the potential to be transformational in terms of how we treat and and help individuals. When you start thinking though about using it for retirement planning and so on. There's all sorts of privacy issues we need to think about. So the British public is is rightly quite cautious about how some of this health data is shared with insurers and, and others. So there's a bridge we need to cross there. The other issue I think is that the information we're talking about, it might help to narrow down the group that you sit in, but I don't think it will ever sort of allow you to pinpoint predict your life expectancy. So it's a big step forward rather than just saying, oh, Stuart, you're a 45-year-old male, so you've got the same life expectancy assumption on average as all other 45-year-old males. You know, we can say, okay, we can see here how much exercise you do, which isn't enough. Uh, We can see these various other metrics, you know, how hard your heart works and Maybe you can get people to be entering food and and alcohol information into apps and so on. So you can maybe group me with the 5% of 45-year-old males that look and act a lot like I do. You'll never deal with that kind of individual risk, you know, the old somebody gets hit by a bus or the sort of genetic differences that might mean that I'm somebody that can live a particular lifestyle and, and it 
and live longer. You know, you, you always hear the case of the 110 year old that smoked 20 a day for most of their lives. So I, I think that individual variation will still swamp the profiling that you would be able to get out of these tech solutions. That's interesting. Okay, well, maybe we should get a tech expert on to dig into that question a bit more, I think. Look, Stuart, that's been super interesting. I'm really grateful to you. If anyone needs to get hold of you, because there's so much more you could have talked about, I know than you we have and you're doing a lot of really interesting work at LCP. If anyone needs to get hold of you, where can they find you? So I'm available on LinkedIn. There is this LCP report. I don't know if you're able to put a link to I'll, it maybe in the in, um, in the show. And, and my email address is there. It's, it's stuart.mcdonald at uk.lcp.com. Fantastic. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.